Section 2 of Crypt City of the Deathless One by Henry Kuttner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Keserick of Southern Ohio. Crypt City of the Deathless One by Henry Kuttner. 3. Garth knuckled under. There was nothing else to do. He knew Brown wouldn't hesitate to kill him. And, after all, what the devil did Paula Trent mean to him? Her life was unimportant compared to the hopeless quest that had quickened in his mind, despite himself. For Doc Willard might still be alive. Even if he wasn't, there was that notebook the Doc had always carried around with him. A book that contained the medico's theories about the Silver Plague. Even if that ghastly dreamlike memory were not merely delirium, even if Garth, witless and unknowing, had killed Willard, there was always that dim, desperate chance that the cure for the plague might be found in the Black Forest. So, damn Paula Trent. She didn't matter when the lives of millions might depend on Garth's penetrating the jungle that had baffled him for five years. Without a word, he turned and started back, Brown keeping close beside him. The huge chamber loomed before them, filled with its cryptic shadows. There was time now to see what they had missed in their quick flight a few moments ago, though not much time, for pursuit might start at any minute. Dead silence and darkness, broken by the crossing beams of the brilliant lamps. Garth listened. Hear anything? Brown shook his head. Nothing. Okay, we'll try this way then went into a passage that sloped down, ending in a vaulted room larger than the first. Brown swung up his gun abruptly as a figure seemed to leap from the darkness in the ray of the lamp. Garth caught his arm. Robot. Unpowered. They're all over the city. The robots. Slaves of the ancients, Garth thought, who had died with them, lacking the fuel that could quicken them to life. No earthly scientists had ever been able to analyze the construction of the machines, for they were built of an alloy that was apparently indestructible. Acid and flame made no impression on the smooth, glittering black surface. This one, like all the others, was roughly man-shaped, nearly eight feet tall, with four arms, the hands extended into limber-jointed fingers almost like tendencies. From the mask-like face, complex, glassy eyes stared blankly. It stood motionless, guarding a world that no longer needed a guardian. With a little shrug, Garth went on, his ears alert for sounds. From the walls, bizarre figures in muraled panels watched. Those murals showed a world of incredibly advanced science, Garth knew. He had seen them before. He spared them not a glance now. The machines, what were they? They loomed like dinosaurs in an endless chain of high-domed vaults. They had once given Chan power and life and strength. The murals showed that. The ancient race had used anti-gravity, a secret unknown to Earthmen, and they had created food by the rearrangement of atomic patterns, not even requiring hydroponic tank cultures. They had ruled this world like gods. And then they had passed with no trace leaving only these silent monuments to their greatness. With the power of the ancients, Earth's lack of fuel reserves would not matter. If the secret of atomic power could be found again, these machines would roar into thundering life, and machines like them would rise on Earth. 
power and greatness such as civilization had never known, power even to reach the stars, and, Garth thought wryly, a power that would be useless unless a cure for the silver plague could be found. He was almost running now, his footsteps and browns echoing hollowly in the great rooms. Silently he cursed Paula Trent. There were other levels below, many of them, and she might be down there, which would make the task almost impossible. A distant flicker of light jerked Garth to a halt. He switched off his lamp, motioning for Brown to do the same. It came again, far away, a firefly glimpse. Paula, the captain said. Guess so, unless they're after us already. Take it easy, then. They went on, running lightly on their toes. The light had vanished, but Garth knew the way. Suddenly, they came out of a short tunnel into one of the great rooms, and relief flooded Garth as he saw Paula's face, pale in the reflected light, a dozen feet away. Simultaneously, a faint sound came rhythmically, like dim drums. Garth said sharply, Hear that? Men coming down a ramp. Get the girl and let's go. But Paula was already coming toward them, blinking in the glare. Who's that? Carver? I... Brown gripped her arm. There's no time to talk now, Paula. We're in a jam. Keep your mouth shut and come along. Garth, can you get us back to that secret passage? Maybe. It'll be blind luck if we make it. Turn your lamps out and link hands. Here. He felt Paula's firm, warm palm hard against his, and remembrance of Moira was suddenly, unexpectedly painful. He had not seen an Earth girl for years. What of it now? Garth moved cat-footedly forward, leading the others. He went fast. Once or twice he clicked on his light briefly. They could hear the noise of the search party now, and a few times could see the distant lights. If they find that open panel, Brown whispered, keep quiet. Garth pressed them back into an alcove as footsteps grew louder. Luck stayed with them. The searchers turned off at another passage. After that, it was like a nightmare, a blind, stumbling race through the blackness of Chan, with menace hiding everywhere. Garth's hand was slippery with perspiration against Paula's by the time he stopped, his light clicking on and off again almost instantly. This is it, he said. The panel shut. Good. Samson must have had enough sense to close it. Unless... Garth found the spring and pressed it. He flashed his light into the darkness to see the familiar faces of Brown's men staring at him. The captain thrust him forward. Paula was instantly beside him, and then Brown himself was through the oval gap. They're coming, he murmured. How in the hell does this work? Here. Garth didn't use his light. Under his deft fingers, the panel slid back into place, shutting off the noise of approaching steps. He gasped a little with relief. Okay, he said in a natural voice. These walls are soundproof. We can use our lights. We'll have to. What happened? Paula's voice said. You said we were in a jam, Carver. Well? We'll talk as we go. Garth, you first. Paula, stay with me. Samson, bring up the rear, will you? Garth obediently set down the sloping tunnel, scarcely listening to Brown's explanation. There were side branches to the passage here and there. He had to use his memory, which seemed less accurate than he remembered. Once, he almost blundered, but caught himself in time. Brown said, Garth, we've got thirty miles of tunnel and twenty more above ground till we hit the forest, right? This is rough going. We won't get out of here till daylight, 
so we'd better camp in the passage at the other end till tomorrow night. We don't have to do that, Garth grunted. This isn't Earth. Jupiter won't rise for thirteen hours. The men have heavy packs. Brown shifted his own big one uncomfortably. Fifty miles is quite a way. Still, the quicker we reach the forest, the safer we'll be. There's a river. Garth's voice was doubtful. We might use that. Would it help? Yeah, but it's dangerous. Why? Spouts. Geysers. The water's apt to explode under you any time. And there are big lizards. Would it take long to make a raft? Garth shook his head. Lada trees are better than balsa, and they grow on the banks. Plenty of vines, too, but... We'll do that, then, Brown said decisively. Speed it up. We've got thirteen hours. We can make it all right. Garth didn't answer. After that, it was pure monotony, a dull, driving march through a bare tunnel, up slopes and down them, till leg muscles were aching with fatigue. Garth dropped into a state of tired apathy. He had no pack to carry, but nevertheless his liquor-soaked body rebelled at the unaccustomed exertion, but he knew that each step brought him closer to his goal. The thoughts swung monotonously through his brain. Doc Willard, the notebook, the cure, the plague. Maybe, maybe, maybe. If he got through, if he found the notebook, if it had the cure, well, that was what he wanted, of course. But suppose he also found the skeleton of Doc Willard on an altar, with a knife hilt protruding from the ribs. He couldn't have killed Doc consciously. That was unthinkable. Yet the damnable influence of the Noctili pollen did odd things to a man's mind. Doc Willard, Moira, the Silver Plague. Half asleep, aching with exhaustion, he slogged ahead, moving like an automaton. And whenever he slowed his pace, Brown's sharp voice urged him on faster. Grudgingly, the captain allowed them rest periods, but by the time they reached the tunnel's end, the men were panting and sweating, and both Paula and Garth were near exhaustion. Thirty miles at a fast pace, with only occasional rests, is wearing work. They emerged from the passage to find themselves on the slope of a rocky hillock. Low ridges rose around them, silhouetted in triple moonlight. A whitish haze hung close to the ground, filling the hollows like shining water. Instinctively, Brown looked up. A meteor, drawn by the immense gravity of Jupiter, flamed across the sky. That was all. And that was a familiar enough sight. Garth, reeling with fatigue, nodded. River, down there, half a mile. The fog's thicker. Okay, let's go. This lap of the journey was nearly the hardest. But the low roar of the river steadily grew louder as they stumbled on, the luminous mist lapping their ankles, their knees, their waists. It closed above their heads so that they moved in a ghost-like, shadowless world in which the very air seemed dimly lighted. Trees were visible. Garth, almost spent, searched for a shelving beach, found it, and dropped in a limp heap. He saw Paula sink down beside him. The men threw off their heavy packs with relief. Brown, the man was made of rawhide and steel, said, I'll need help to make a raft. The boys that feel tired can keep their eyes open for pursuit planes. I don't think the commander would send out truck cats at night, but he'll use the searching planes. They can't see us in this fog, Paula said faintly. They could hear us with their motors muffled, so we'll work fast. Garth. Yeah, what? 
What trees do we want? Garth pointed. Lata. Like that one over there. They're easy to cut down and they float. You'll find tough vines all around here. He forced the words out with an effort. Brown mustered eight of his men, including the red-haired Samson, and led them away. The sound of ringing axes presently drifted back. Two others had been stationed on hillocks, above the low-lying fog, to watch for planes. Garth, alone with Paula, was almost too tired to be conscious of her presence. He heard her voice. Cigarette? Thanks. Garth took one. Sorry I can't offer you a drink. So am I. Garth grunted. He could feel her eyes on him. He drew the smoke deep into his lungs, exhaling luxuriously. Got a gun? Yes. Why? Oh, things come out of the river sometimes. Hunting water lizards, carnivorous. You learn to sleep with one eye open on Ganymede. It's a funny world, Paula acknowledged. Once it was highly civilized. Now it's gone back to savagery. Conditions are bad here. Too vigorous. Jupiter gives light but not much heat. Animals and plants have to be tough to survive. This is summer season, but it's plenty cold. How much do you know about the Zarno? She asked abruptly. Garth blinked. Not much. Why? Not many people have ever seen them. I'm wondering. I managed to translate some inscriptions from Chan. The Zarno aren't human, are they? Garth didn't answer. Paula went on. The ancients knew them, though. They tried to educate them, like Rome colonizing savage races. That's probably why the Zarno are supposed to speak the ancient tongue. They do. And then the ancients died out, somehow. The Zarno were left. They became barbarous again. I wish I knew what they were like. Natives who've seen them don't seem able to describe the creatures. They wear shining armor, don't they? Garth closed his eyes, trying to remember. A vague, dim picture was growing in his mind. Man-like figures that glowed, faces that were craggy, hideous creatures. I've seen them, he said, but I've forgotten. The noctili poison, it wrecked my memory. You don't recall anything? I... Garth rubbed his forehead. Not human, no. Creatures like living statues, shining and moving. I don't know. Silicate life? Paula theorized thoughtfully. It's possible. And it might evolve on a planet where conditions were so tough for survival. Such creatures wouldn't be affected by the noctili pollen either, would they? No. Or they built up resistance. The virus is active only in daylight, when the flowers are open. I don't know why. Before we go too far into the Black Forest, I'll have to give everyone antitoxin shots. Everyone but me. The pollen doesn't work on me anymore. They were silent, resting. It seemed only a moment before Brown appeared, announcing that the raft was ready. It's a makeshift job, but it's strong, he said. Listen, Garth, what about the planes spotting us on the river? We'll be an easy target. They wouldn't fire on us. No, but they'd use sleep gas and nab us when we drifted ashore. We don't want that. Garth rose, his muscles aching. It's a chance. Most of the time, there'll be fog on the river. That'll help. He found his medical kit and shouldered it. I'm ready. The men were already on the raft, a big platform of light, tough lata logs bound together by vines. Garth took his place near the pile of equipment in the center. 
Keep to midstream, he cautioned. Watch for bubbles breaking ahead. Swing wide of those. Water spouts. The raft slid out from the bank, long poles guiding it. Water washed aboard and slipped away as the platform found its balance. Presently, they were drifting downstream in the dimly lighted fog, the black river murmuring quietly beneath them. Garth kept his gaze ahead. It was hard to see in the faint, filtered light of the moons, but a ray lamp would have been betraying to any planes that might be searching above. Swing left, hard, he called. The men obeyed. Oily bubbles were breaking the surface. As the raft moved toward the bank, a sudden geyser burst up from the river, a spouting torrent that tipped the platform dangerously and showered its occupants with icy spray. Garth met Brown's eyes. See what I mean? he remarked. Yeah, still, if that's all... The river flowed fast. Once or twice, the plated back of a giant saurian was visible, but the water reptiles did not attack, made wary, perhaps, by the bulk of the raft. There were other water spouts, but the men soon became adept at avoiding them. Sometimes they drifted through fog. Sometimes the mists were dissipated by winds, though not often. During one of the latter periods, a faint droning drifted down from above. It was the worst possible timing, for the two larger moons were directly overhead, blazing down on the river. The stub-winged shape of a plane loomed against the starry sky. Brown said sharply, drop flat. Don't move. He forced Garth and Paula down. No, don't look up. They'd see our faces. They can't miss us, Samson murmured. There's fog ahead. The sound of the plane's motors grew louder. Abruptly, there was a splash. Another. Something shattered on the raft. Hold your breath, Brown snapped. Garth tried to obey. A stinging ache had crept into his nostrils. His lungs began to hurt. The plane had spotted them. That was obvious. Sleep gas works fast. Another soft crash. Garth barely heard it. He saw a stubby, cruciform shadow sweep over the raft as the plane swooped, and then a wall of silvery fog was looming up ahead. Paula gave a little gasp. Her body collapsed against him. The fire in Garth's chest was blazing agony. Despite himself, he let breath rush into his lungs. After that, complete blackness and oblivion. Four. Garth woke in reddish, dim twilight. Instantly, he knew where he was, even before he sat up and saw the black boles of immense trees rising like pillars around him. The forest. About time, Captain Brown's toneless voice said. That sleep gas put you under for hours. Garth rose, glancing around. They were camped in a little clearing among the gigantic trees, and some of the men were heating their rations over radiolite stove kits. From above, the crimson light filtered vaguely from a leafy roof incredibly far. The trees of the black forest were taller than California sequoias, and Jupiter light reached the ground faintly through the ceiling of red leaves that roofed the jungle. Paula, Garth saw, was lying with her eyes closed not far away. She all right? Sure, Brown said. Resting is all. We got away from Benson's plane, hit that fog bank just in time. You'd passed out, so I took a chance and kept going. After we reached the forest, I landed the raft and headed inland a bit. So here we are. Garth nodded. That was wise. The river goes underground half a mile further. Any accidents? Brown looked at him oddly. 
This might be Yosemite for all the danger I've seen so far. It's a picnic. That, Garth said, is just why it's so bad. You don't see the trouble till after it's happened. He didn't explain. Where's my kit? Here. Why? Before we go any further, you'll need shots. Antitoxin against the noctili pollen. The flowers don't grow on the edges of the forest, but the wind carries their poison quite a ways sometimes. Garth rummaged in his kit, found sealed vials and a hypo, and carefully sterilized everything over a radiolite stove he commandeered from one of the men. After that, he administered the antivirus, first to Paula and last of all to Brown. He took none himself. He had acquired a natural immunity to the pollen. There was barely enough to go around. Brown's shot was slightly less than the regular dosage, which vaguely worried Garth. But the captain, annoyed by the delay, was anxious to talk about immediate plans. Benson might land at the edge of the forest and come after us a mile or so. Not further. But we better start moving. He led Garth over to where Paula sat. It's time for you to see the map. The girl nodded in agreement. She took out a folded flex paper and extended it. Garth squinted down in the red twilight. Map? More like treasure hunt, Paula explained. There's a series of guide points, you see. So far, we're okay. Narva means west in the ancient tongue, doesn't it? Narva. Garth gave the word a slightly different pronunciation. Yeah, well, three salags northwest to the mouse of the waters below. Mouse of the singing below, I made it. Garth shook his head. I can't read the stuff. I just know the spoken language. Read the whole thing out loud so I can get it. Paula obeyed. Her pronunciation made some words unfamiliar to Garth, but by experiment he found what was meant. Uh-huh. A salag is less than three miles as far as I can judge. I think I know the place. It's a hill honeycombed with little caves. You can hear the water running underneath it. That fits, the girl agreed. This won't be so hard after all. Garth grunted. He turned to Brown. I want a gun. And a knife. I'll need both. Samson! The red-haired man approached, squinting. Yeah? Rustle up a knife and gun for Garth. Check. Paula was staring at Garth. You expect trouble, don't you? I do. She made a gesture. This all seems so peaceful. Listen, Garth said. The Black Forest is the worst death trap in the system. Here's why. The struggle for existence is plenty tough here. Brute strength isn't enough, nor agility. A tiger or a deer wouldn't last long here. In the forest, the survival of the fittest means the plant or animal that can get the most food. That sort of thing has been going on here for a million years. The beasts developed super quick reactions. They could smell danger a mile away, so they had to have strength, agility, and something else to get close to their prey. Brown stared. What? Invisibility, or its equivalent. Ever heard of protective coloration? Camouflage? Well, the creatures of the forest are the most perfect camouflage experts that exist. They don't simply trick your eyes, either. They trick the other senses. If you smell perfume, take it easy, or you'll find yourself asleep while your head's being chewed off by a lizard that looks as nasty as it smells good. If you see a path and it feels solid, don't walk too far on it. Things have made that path. A carnivorous moss that feels exactly like smooth dirt underfoot till their digestive juices start working. If you hear me yelling your name, take it easy. There are birds like harpies here that imitate sounds the way parrots do. 
Garst's grin was tight. You'll find out. It's camouflage carried to the last degree for offense and defense. I know the forest pretty well. You don't. You haven't developed a sort of sixth sense, an instinct that tells you when something smells bad, even though it looks like a six-course dinner. All right, the captain said. This is your territory, not mine. It's up to you. It was, Garth decided later as he led the way through the black columns of the trees, very much up to him. Brown and the others were tough, hard fighters, but they didn't know the subtleties of this hellhole, where death lurked everywhere disguised. He had got a drink from Samson and his nerves were less jagged, but physical exhaustion still gripped him. He'd been on the skids for a long time and was in rotten bad shape, but if the girl could stand it, he could. It was warmer in the forest. The trees seemed to exhale heat and moisture, and there was no snow on the ground. Great ebony pillars of giant trees, rising hundreds of feet into the air, made the place a labyrinth, and the deceptive reddish twilight made walking difficult, even to Garth's trained senses. There was trouble, though. When a gorgeously colored butterfly, flame red and green, fluttered down toward Paula, Garth hastily slapped at the insect with a thick leaf he was carrying. Watch out for those, he told the girl, nodding toward the crushed body. They're poisonous. Bad medicine. And once, as Brown was about to seat himself on a rounded grayish boulder, Garth whirled the man away just in time. A hole in the rock gaped open, and a pair of fanged mandibles snapped out, clicking together viciously. Garth put a bullet in the thing. It heaved itself up on spidery legs, revealing that the rock was a carapace covering an insect-like body, and it took a long time to die. There were other similar incidents. They had a bad effect on the men, even Samson. The crew Brown had picked was tough, but the Black Forest was like distilled poison. It was easier to face a charging rhino than to travel through this ebony jungle where silent, secret death lurked concealed in a diabolic masquerade. That was the first day. The second was worse. The trees were thicker, and sometimes it was necessary to use machete blades to hew through the tangled undergrowth. Another day, and another, and another, following the clues on Paula's cipher map. They found the first guidepost, the hill honeycombed with caves, and from there went on to the east, camping at the edge of a ravine that dropped away into unplumbed darkness. Camouflage moss grew here, looking deceptively like solid ground. One of the men ventured too close to the edge of the cleft, and the moss crumbled beneath him, dropping him into a nest of the roots, twining, writhing, cannibalistic serpents with sucker discs that drank blood thirstily. They got him out in time, luckily, but the men's nerves were jolted. After that, day after day, constant alertness was vital. The party walked with guns and knives in their hands. Their footsteps rang hollow in the dead, empty silence of the forest. It was only Garth's knowledge of the dark wilderness that got them through to the interior. After a week, he was further in than he had ever penetrated before, except when he had crashed the air car with Doc Willard five years ago. But they were getting closer, nearer. More and more often, Garth remembered the black notebook that might hold the cure for the Silver Plague. For some indefinable reason, he had come to feel that Paula's goal was also his. It was logical enough. 
They were searching for a lost treasure house of the ancient race, guarded, perhaps, by the Zarno, and Garth was certain that during that period of partial amnesia, he and Willard had been captives of the Zarno. He had been drugged with the Noctili poison by day, but at night he had wakened in a bare cell with his friend, a cell with walls of metal, he recalled. It had been windowless, lighted by a faint glow from one corner. It checked, a ruin once built by the ancients, now inhabited by the Zarno. If he could find that notebook. He always stopped there. He knew what he might also discover, the skeleton of Willard stretched on an altar. That picture always made his stomach go cold and tight. That night, Brown complained of a splitting headache. They camped near a stream, and Garth accompanied the captain down to the bank with canvas pails. Jupiter was invisible. They had not seen the sky for a week, but the red light was fading. Not too close, Garth cautioned. Let me test it first. Brown stared at him. What now? I'm getting to expect anything here. The man's expressionless face showed signs of strain and exhaustion. He had no nerves, apparently, but the grueling journey told on him nevertheless. Garth used his knife to cut down a sapling. He impaled a leaf to its point and extended it gingerly over the dark water. After a moment, he felt a shock like a striking fish, and the pole was nearly wrenched from his hands. And he wrestled with it. Brown's hands gripped the sapling. What the devil? Garth! Let it go. I was only testing anyway. The pole was dragged into the water, where it thrashed about violently for a few moments. What is it? Garth was searching through the underbrush for something. Water snakes. Big ones, perfectly transparent. They wait for some animal to come along and take a drink, then bang. He nodded. Here we are. We'll find a lot of the Noctili flowers from now on. He brought out a bloom nearly a foot in diameter, with leaves of pulpy, glossy black, a thick powdering of silver in its cup. This is Noctili, Captain. Looks harmless, doesn't it? Yeah. Brown rubbed his forehead. The pollen gives you amnesia? In the daytime, when it's active, it's phototropic. Needs light. Jupiter can't have set yet, so this ought to work. Garth found another pole, speared the flower on its tip, and extended the blossom over the water. He shook the silver dust into the stream. It works fast. The snakes will be paralyzed in a few seconds. The current carries off the pollen. We dip up the water we need. And that's that. Paula peered through the bushes, glancing around warily. In the last week, everyone had learned to be alert always. Lines of fatigue showed on her pale face. Red-gold hair was plastered damply on her forehead. Carver, what's up? She glanced at Garth. The men, Samson's talking to them. Brown's rat-trap mouth clamped tight. That's so? Samson shoots his mouth off too much. What's the angle? I think they want to go back. Garth, dipping up water in the canvas bucket, said, We've only three more days to go, unless we run into bad country. I know, but... They're armed. I'll talk to him, Brown said quietly. He lifted two of the pails and started up the path, Paula and Garth trailing him. Presently, they reached the clearing where camp had been made. The men weren't cooking. Instead, they were gathered in a knot around Samson, whose blazing red hair stood up like a beacon. Brown put down his burden and walked toward them. They broke up at the sight of him, but didn't scatter. Samson's hand crept imperceptibly toward his holster. Trouble? Bran asked. 
Samson squinted at him. No trouble, except we didn't know the forest would be as bad as it is. So you want to go back? You can't blame us for that, Samson said, bunching his heavy shoulders. It's only dumb luck that's kept us alive so far. We didn't bargain for this, Captain. I told you what to expect. All you said was that it'd be dangerous. None of us knew the forest. Those damn bloodsucker plants are the worst. They reach out at a guy everywhere he turns. And the other things. We can't get through, Captain. You ought to be able to see that yourself. Nobody's been killed so far. Blind luck. And Garth, too. He knows this country. If we didn't have him, we wouldn't have lasted a day. We've got him, Brown said crisply. So we're going on. Only three more days anyhow. That's enough. Start cooking your rations. He turned his back on Samson and walked away. The red-haired giant hesitated, scowling. Finally, he shrugged and glanced around at the others. That broke the tension. One by one, the men scattered to prepare food. Only Garth was gnawed by a persistent, deep-rooted fear. He didn't admit it, even to himself. But he watched Brown closely that night and finally unpacked his medical kit and carefully searched it for something he knew wasn't there. He was dreading the next morning. End of section two.